Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. It's wonderful to be back at CIU uh, with so many old friends. My title today, CIU in the Past and History of Global Mission. Christianity is a religion made to travel. The God of the Bible is not a geographically parochial deity, but the creator of the universe who desires relationship with all people. Followers of Jesus are commanded to go and serve as witnesses of Jesus and the gospel to the ends of the earth. Travel is a part of Christian faithfulness. The Apostle Paul, benefiting from Roman roads and Roman peace and a common language, traveled 10,000 miles as a missionary, equivalent to the distance from Eugene, Oregon to Pretoria, South Africa. In 1793, it took the British missionary, William Carey, five months to travel to India. When my maternal grandfather, Robert C. McQuilkin, was born, people were enjoying Jules Verne's 1873 science fiction fantasy of someone traveling around the world in only 80 days. As founding president of CBC, with the motto to know him and make him known, McQuilkin helped train generations of students, including his own children, who traveled as missionaries to distant places around the world. By the time CIU was founded, new technologies were greatly increasing the pace and ease of travel. In 1928, five years after CIU was founded, and for the first time ever, a traveler circumnavigated the globe more quickly than the moon's 27-day orbit. Today, many of you in this room, I should ask, how many of you? Many of you in this room have traveled on a single week-long mission trip farther than Paul, the great missionary traveler, did in his entire life. Missionary travel has often involved dangerous adventure. The Apostle Paul reported that in his frequent journeys he experienced hunger and thirst, sleepless nights, danger from robbers, from rivers, at sea, in cities, in wilderness, from Gentile lynch mobs and Jewish. He was shipwrecked three times and adrift the night and day on the open sea. When my father entered Bolivia in the early 50s as the first of two Wycliffe SIL missionaries in the country, government permission soon allowed a whole team of SIL members backed with ham radios and airplanes to enter and set up shop. As an initially unmarried man, my dad's initial job was to travel on foot, by canoe, or on oxback through swamp and jungle seeking to identify and make contact with remote ethno-linguistic groups with whom language work and Bible translation could begin. I grew up hearing about adventures on these trips. When I was 15, I went on a similar trip, sent to check out a rumor about an uncontacted indigenous group. For three weeks, Dan Gabler and I hiked through trackless mountain jungles from the town of Apollo to the mouth of the Colorado Chico River on the Peruvian border. We had close encounters with jaguars, insects, and treacherous mountain rivers. At one point, hungry and out of food, we seriously thought about eating a vulture Dan had shot. At the mouth of the Colorado Chico, we took advantage of a sand and rock bar to prepare a landing strip for a helio courier to pick me up and drop off another team to continue the survey upriver. As I flew away, it took only minutes to cover the 67 miles we had taken weeks to cover on foot. 
Of course, missionaries and their kids are not the only ones who travel. Ten years after my own trip, Yossi Ginsberg and three companions, having heard rumors about an uncontacted tribe with treasures of gold on the Colorado Chico River, flew to the town of Apollo and began the same trek we had traveled ten years earlier. They also had experiences with jaguars, insects, raging rivers, and hunger. Yossi reported, when you reach that level of hunger, nothing is disgusting. I would have eaten anything, even human flesh. But while Dan and I, in daily contact with headquarters, survived together and unscathed, Yossi and his three companions were separated. One escaped the jungle, organized a rescue effort, but only Yossi was rescued. The other two were never found. As I read Yossi's book about these events and watched Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter, play the role of Yossi in the movie Jungle, I reflected that if they just checked with me, I could have told them what SIL had already discovered that despite rumors of such an uncontacted tribe on the Colorado Chico, no such group existed with or without treasures of gold. Missionary narratives of 100 years ago were often travel narratives. For example, in several books with titles such as Boot and Saddle in Africa, my grandmother's brother, Dr. Tom Lambie, who spoke repeatedly in CIU chapels, recounted his missionary travel adventures crisscrossing Ethiopia and Sudan. Today's missionaries no longer face the same travel challenges earlier missionaries faced. Of course, Jesus' call to go was never merely a call to travel, a religious justification for adventure tourism. It was instead a call to engage people in destination sites with a message not in a heavenly language, but earthly. And the peoples of earth did not speak one language, but thousands. Thus, obedience to Jesus' go command required language learning. Even when it took missionaries months of travel to meet distant people face to face, missionaries quickly learned that the last 18 inches represented the greatest distance of all a linguistic distance that would require not days or weeks to cross, but years and even decades. My parents were part of a missionary generation that consciously focused not simply on geography, but on reaching every ethno-linguistic people group in their own language. They studied linguistics and spent over 30 years with a few hundred Syrian-O. They analyzed the language, developed an alphabet, began a school, translated the Bible. The story of Christian missions is a story of the greatest linguistic translation movement in history, carried out by thousands of missionaries in out-of-the-way places. In the process, many missionaries, including CIU graduates such as Mary Ruth Wise and Mildred Larson, became some of the world's greatest linguists. Linguistics was part of faithfulness to Jesus' call to go. But as missionaries attempted to bridge the last 18 inches, they discovered that language was intertwined with another barrier, culture. The fact that over half the world's languages did not have a word for kissing was an artifact not just of language but of culture. More than half the world's cultures historically did not have kissing as a cultural practice, so of course they did not have a word for something that to them did not exist. As missionaries learned, people in specific ethno-linguistic groups shared not only language but cultural practices, beliefs, rituals, values, 
categories, assumptions, symbols, aesthetic judgments, musical systems, worldviews, and foodways. This had profound implications for missionaries. When Jesus told 72 of his Jewish disciples preaching in Jewish villages that anytime someone invites you, welcomes you into their home and serves you food, you should, quote, eat whatever is set before you, Luke 10, this was not culturally difficult since all parties were Jewish and thus shared cultural dietary preferences and taboos. But when the Apostle Paul speaking about missionary witness to Gentiles, told Jewish believers invited to a meal by non-Christian Gentile hosts, eat whatever is set before you, 1 Corinthians 10, this was profoundly difficult for Jewish believers to do. Would-be Jewish missionaries were far more inclined naturally to be Judaizers, to use Paul's word, ethnocentrically rejecting the cultural practices of others and trying to make the whole world Jewish. Paul called instead for missionaries who would themselves adjust culturally, becoming all things to all people. In Paul's paradigm, missionaries have no mandate to advocate that the world learn the missionary's language or culture. Missionaries must themselves make cultural adjustments to others. This is part of the going that Jesus demands. And just as there is a science of language and linguistics, so there is a science of culture in anthropology. Indeed, missionaries were among the earliest contributors to the discipline of anthropology. Each of my parents studied anthropology and they published short articles on Syriano culture in the premier anthropology journal, The American Anthropologist. Their goal? Not to achieve academic status, but to understand another culture well enough to minister effectively and respectfully to people in that culture. So central is the anthropological concept of culture to missionary preparation today that most academic programs for missionary preparation identify simply as intercultural studies. My parents were part of what the great missiologist Ralph Winter called the third era of Christian Protestant mission. Uh, based on a paradigm of mission focused on unreached ethno-linguistic people groups. When my parents first went to Bolivia, there were many such groups without an indigenous church and Bible in their language. When SIL left Bolivia in the mid-80s, every single people group had an indigenous church and scriptures in their language. With mission understood as initial outreach to unreached groups, my parents and their colleagues understood their task in Bolivia as completed, so they redeployed to start over elsewhere. Bolivia no longer fit the paradigm of third era mission. Today, relatively few regions on earth fully do. When I did my PhD in anthropology at UC Berkeley, anthropologists mostly did not consider Christianity a suitable research topic. However, as fellow grad students returned from fieldwork around the world, they virtually one and all expressed surprise that a good proportion of even the remotest indigenous people they'd studied were energetic Christians. Of course, Christianity was only one globalizing element that was dramatically changing the world with reference to distinct bounded cultures. In 1955, Kiwa New Guinea villagers, on first seeing pictures of a man and woman kissing, gasped missionary Carl Franklin, they're, they're, they're eating each other. 
1978, as I traveled in the rainforest with a band of Syrian on trek, I observed Raoul attempt over several days to instruct his giggling young Syrian bride in the revolutionary new practice of kissing. She was a willing learner. Uh, today, it would be hard to find any society on earth where people do not, at some level, know about the cultural practice of kissing. Globalization changes cultures. In the past, anthropologists studied local communities whose members shared a language and a unique culture. They focused especially on the culture of discrete groups, demonstrating the symbolic coherence, functionality, and meaningfulness of each culture. They stress that there is more than one way of being human and that anthropology can help us interact with people of other societies in ways that truly understands their cultural, moral, and symbolic order, and where we should not simply react ethnocentrically to cultural others. Missionaries of that era, like my parents, found anthropology enormously helpful as they worked to communicate effectively and to inspire a contextualized indigenous church for each culture. But under the ongoing impact of globalization, local languages became less salient as national and world languages became central. When my parents began work in Bolivia, most Syriano were monolingual, able to communicate fluently only with 400 other people in the universe. Today, few Syriano under the age of 30 even speak Syriano. It is instead Spanish fluency that permits engagement with a globalized world. Even among large ethno-linguistic groups such as Kenya's Kikuyu, Kamba, Luya, Luo, or Kalenjin, it is fluency in English and perhaps Swahili, not in one's ancestral language, that is most critical to success. Increasingly, regional and international trade languages are the valued mediums of communication and knowledge in a globalized and globally networked world. And in our age of rapid transportation, instant communication, widely spoken regional and world languages, mass media presence, worldwide economic integration, and state-controlled education, old cultural systems disintegrate. Selected cultural artifacts that can be sold to tourists or selected cultural symbols that can be deployed in a political context as markers of ethnic identity sometimes remain. But old traditional cultures as intact meaningful systems are losing efficacy in the context of these other economic, political, and structural forces. And this creates crises for both anthropologists and missionaries. As anthropologists continue to research people they've always studied, they no longer find themselves impressed with the power and resilience of each group's culture to provide people with successful and meaningful lives. Instead, they are struck by how many of these peoples in the twilight of old cultures and under new globalized political economies are living lives of suffering. People living in poverty, pain, and under conditions of violence or oppression is now the central focus of most anthropologists, according to noted anthropologist Joel Robbins in an already classic 2013 essay. In her equally influential essay, Sherry Ortner in 2016 calls this change in anthropology a turn towards dark anthropology. 
She says that inspired theoretically by Karl Marx, anthropologists increasingly stress the harsh and brutal dimensions of social experience and view the world theoretically almost entirely in terms of power, exploitation, and chronic pervasive inequality. What this means, according to Joel Robbins, is that most anthropologists no longer focus on culture and meaning as primary to their object of study, but instead on suffering. Interestingly, we'll come back to that, in the changing world, missionaries have also revised missionary priorities. A shrinking proportion of missionaries today fit the third-era paradigm of pioneer missionary to unreached uh, ethno-linguistic groups. Uh, this decline is true both because of prior missionary successes in reaching such groups and because globalization is creating a different sort of world with far less boundedness tied to language and old traditional cultures. In nearly every ethno-linguistic group today, one finds some who are educated and bilingual fluent in some major world language as well as their ancestral language, and often with some such individuals already Christian. In such a world with the decline of bounded, exclusively monolingual people groups, it makes less sense to have foreign missionaries start from scratch to learn smaller minority languages to be the ones themselves doing needed Bible translation. Instead, missionary linguists today, like Katie Barnwell featured in Christianity Today, commonly partner as consultants with educated bilingual and often Christian native speakers who themselves do the translation. Indeed, missionaries serving as strategic partners and brokers is one defining aspect of contemporary mission. In certain respects, missionaries have recently reoriented in ways parallel to anthropology. Anthropologists shifted from a focus on distinct people groups who are culturally other as the focus of study to a focus on the suffering subject as the privileged center of attention, says Joel Robbins. Arguably, missionaries have likewise been shifting, at least in part, from unreached peoples to suffering people as the privileged focus of attention. Dr. Ralph Winner, who named the third era of Protestant mission as focusing on unreached people, suggested late in his life that we are now entering a fourth era of Christian mission, an era in which we must reconceptualize Christian mission as prioritizing the fight against disease, poverty, injustice, oppression, human trafficking. Scott Moreau, in analyzing current trends for the Protestant mission handbook, has demonstrated a reorientation among mission agencies towards contexts characterized by suffering, and thus with ministry focused on trauma care, orphan care, child sponsorship, medical missions, peace and reconciliation, relief and development, business as mission, or justice initiatives related to such things as sex trafficking. These are often what inspire uh, mission today. Under the stated rubric of holistic mission, Western missionaries of today are often clustered, not where Christians are most absent, but where people live under conditions of suffering and poverty. Today, the divide between missionary sending lands and their fields of missionary attention is often as much a socioeconomic divide as a religious one. Most Christian missionaries traveling to settings where Christian presence and witness is not necessarily more absent than it is in America, but where the poverty and suffering is dramatically higher. So, if we live in a world of suffering people, are anthropologists and missionaries out of line for making suffering people a privileged focus of attention? 
Clearly, the Bible itself focuses attention on those who suffer. And historically, both anthropologists and missionaries did focus on those who suffer. Anthropologist Alan Holmberg's study on the Syrian No focuses on their suffering. My mom, a registered nurse, spent much of every day attending to the medical needs of the Syrian No, just as her sister Amy, also a registered nurse, did in Colombia. Through my parents' ministry, the Syrian O moved in three decades from illiteracy to high levels of literacy and ability to calculate finances, both of which were critical to buffering them from exploitation-induced suffering. A century ago, Tom Lambie started two hospitals in Ethiopia, one a leprosarium, and in Palestine he founded a tuberculosis sanitarium. So anthropologists and missionaries of earlier eras did address suffering. So what is different about some of the present era which makes suffering people the privileged focus of attention? For anthropologists, according to Joel Robbins, what is new is that most anthropologists have almost entirely replaced their earlier focus on culture and meaning with a focus on suffering, understood largely as caused by economic and political forces. Culture and meaning now largely disappear from the analysis. But while, here's, Robin says, while specific old meanings of old cultural groups often do lose power under globalization, Robbins argues that people nonetheless continue to need meaning, to create meaning, and to act in terms of meanings, values, and purposes that are themselves cultural. He says culture is revised and changed, but it remains present. Five years ago, I spent a summer in Kinshasa, the third largest city in Africa, a city filled with tragedy and where residents often explain their misfortune as caused by family members who are witches. Doki. As part of my research, I spent four hours a day for 20 days discussing with elderly native speakers the translation of the Bible into 20 different Congolese languages, exploring especially the meaning of words in each language related to witchcraft. Each cultural group had distinct differences of belief and practice related to witchcraft. These elderly informants were often accompanied by their adult urban grandchildren who were fluent, not in their ancestral language, but mainly in Ningala and French, the languages of business, education, and church life. And these younger adults had little understanding of the distinctive cultural beliefs and practices of their own distinct ethnic group. I lack time to explain this, but can illustrate one shift. In the past, if you asked who is most likely to be the life-destroying witch, in most groups the answer would have been a poor, elderly, old widow. Today, in Kinshasa, the answer would likely be an orphan child. Not surprisingly, it is such accused children who comprise the bulk of Kinshasa's tens of thousands of homeless street children. Today, radically new cultural ideas about child witches pioneered in Kinshasa and spread through Congolese and Nigerian films are being embraced by distant people who only a few years earlier laughed at the very idea that a child could be a witch. Robbins not only demonstrates that culture and meaning continue to be present, but that they have deep effects. It's not just economic things that affect, it's what you believe in your culture. In his research, he sees people as agents, often working towards good in their own lives. He's especially interested in people's moral and religious understandings and of how they try to live these out culturally. Again and again, this Jewish anthropologist discovers 
that local Christians, his research interests, are formulating significant ruptures with old cultural patterns. That is, as Christians, they are making breaks deliberately, creating new and contextually meaningful life ways that promote the good. And Joel Robbins calls on anthropologists to research this and criticizes their tendencies under Marxist paradigms to, quote, dismiss people's ideals as unimportant or worse, as bad faith alibis for the worlds they actually create, and to simply assume that people are ignoring their own stated ideals or deploying them in a nefarious way. Thus, he calls on anthropologists not to fixate on dark anthropology, essentializing others only as victims or victimizers, but to develop also an anthropology of the good. So, what about missionaries' parallel tendency in our era to prioritize suffering people under the rubric of holistic mission? Since we read a Bible that speaks about care for the suffering of the poor and oppressed, the widow and orphan, the stranger or immigrant in our midst, and since we worship a Savior who has suffered on our behalf and who calls us into a life where faithfulness involves suffering, and since the core aspect of gospel witness is visible love demonstrated in practical care and concern for the least of these, it cannot be wrong for Christian missionaries to have a prioritized concern for those who suffer. In addition to the obvious fact of suffering in our globalized world, at least two additional factors influence the current strong uh, influence on holistic mission to suffering people. First, we currently live in a world where a high proportion of the world's Christians reside in settings characterized by extreme poverty and suffering. For Christians in resource-rich parts of the world to partner with suffering fellow believers across such divides in service of human flourishing and in ways that enhances the witness of local believers in their own setting is a huge part of what holistic ministry does and can do well today. Second, holistic mission is partly a response to operating in a world where secularist and even anti-Christian impulses govern public life. Let me illustrate. Twenty years ago in a Chicago suburb, my wife and I were friends with Sue. She took her Christian faith seriously, but her hospital work environment as a nurse mandated silence about spiritual matters. Indeed, a supervisor had written her up with a warning about possible job loss after overhearing her discuss spiritual matters while on the job. So Sue's felt schizophrenic. She could be fully Christian in church, but in her everyday professional life, as she worked closely with people facing illness, tragedy, and death, all conversation must remain secular. Then she discovered medical missions. She organized with other Christian nurses, was sponsored by a local church and hosted by African Christian partners and began annual medical mission trips to South Africa, eventually forming her own 501c3. For two weeks every year, Sue was not schizophrenic. She could be both a nurse and a verbally witnessing Christian at the same time. She reported that she spent her whole year dreaming and planning for those two weeks. And something surprising happened not only in Africa, but back in Chicago. Her hospital, that had threatened her with job loss, now donated medical supplies worth tens of thousands of dollars to her team, encouraged the other nurses to participate, invited her to report on her church-sponsored medical mission trip serving AIDS patients in Africa in the hospital newsletter. 
when her team brought a burn victim child to Chicago for special surgery, a Chicago TV station did a story on him. An Illinois senator in Springfield with an African father, not yet famous as a U.S. president, allowed himself to be videoed praising the work of her medical mission. That is, Sue discovered she had incredible platforms to have a kind of visible public Christian witness in her own community. Um, in the context of activities that others were impressed with, wished to support, and felt uh, good about. This, um, a great deal of holistic ministry involves activities that people can broadly appreciate whether or not they are Christian and thus open doors. Christian holistic mission today exists in part I would argue as a strategic response to environments where anti-Christian impulses and ideologies are common, but it must also be said that even holistic ministries are often under unrelenting pressure to eliminate any explicitly verbalized communication of Christian meanings. So is there a danger, as with anthropologists, that missionaries would entirely substitute one thing for another? Historically, missionaries understood their mission in terms of a verbalizable body of good meanings, a gospel to be communicated, especially to those in communities not yet reached, who have not yet heard one time. There was confidence that these Christian meanings were true and would transform lives for good. Under the stated ideal of holistic mission today, we ostensibly retain both our historic focus on meaning, on communicating the message to those who need it, and accompany it by programs focused on helping those who suffer. But there is some evidence that holistic mission sometimes functions for some as a rhetorical device concealing the extent to which a new mission focus has almost entirely displaced any confident focus on the verbal exposition and defense of the Christian message. When the noted sociologist Robert Wethnow studied North American missionaries abroad, he noted that many were focused on holistic mission and quoted to him the supposed uh, words of Francis of Assisi that we should preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. He concluded after probing interviews, follow-up questions, that many missionaries viewed acts of love and kindness as the only needed preaching and that they were personally uneasy with any verbal exposition and defense of the Christian message. I mentioned this to my then colleague Jim Pluteman, who told me about a conversation he had just had with a Trinity student planning to be a missionary who had waxed eloquent about his community development plans in an urban setting. Jim asked him, have you given any thought to how you will organize your ministry to include a verbal communication of the gospel and the Christian message? He replied, you must have misunderstood me. That's not my ministry. I will be doing holistic mission. Jim's reply, what you're describing is halfistic mission. <laughs> holistic mission implies you're robustly combining word and deed, not simply substituting one thing for another. In current environments that are actively hostile to Christian mission, holistic ministries often have great value, but in the same environment, halfistic mission can be a continuous temptation. I began to appreciate the current cultural backdrop of anti-Christian impulses a few years after I graduated from CIU and was pursuing my MA in social science and anthropology at the University of Chicago. While there, I read everything I could find by anthropologists about missionaries. 
I found a lot of negative commentary about missionaries, but when I checked, none of it seemed well supported empirically. I decided to review that literature for my thesis, arguing you could predict what anthropologists were going to say about missionaries based on their ideologies, and that very little of what they said prior to that date, 1983, was reliably based on objective research. I figured there was a good chance my thesis would be rejected, and I told the Lord that if so, I would accept rejection as guidance that I should not be an anthropologist. So I was astonished when my professor assigned my thesis an A plus and asked if he could make copies for other faculty. A few months later, I was awarded a $1,000 prize for the best MA thesis in the divisional master's program that year, and I was invited to speak at a University of Chicago banquet, speak about my thesis. It took me years to figure out why they liked my thesis. They were not supposed to. But what I immediately understood was that sometimes it really is possible to successfully counter anti-Christian and anti-missionary claims of others. Fifteen years later, I successfully published an article in a top anthropology journal arguing again that many anthropologists have been guilty of propagating false narratives about Christian missionaries and about Christian sexual morality. Fourteen prominent anthropologists wrote replies to my article. None of them countered my central claims. I'll never forget interviewing an old Mennonite missionary anthropologist, church planter from Japan. He had taken out time to get a PhD in anthropology at the University of Michigan. It was an era when almost no anthropologists had done research in Japan, so as he wrote his dissertation, he was asked to teach anthropology classes. Then he was invited to candidate for a full tenure-track faculty position, leave that mission stuff, be a professor. He declined and returned to Japan as a church planner. I asked him late in life, to explain his decision. His answer surprised me. He said, as a professor, I mandated what students read. I set the requirements. I graded the suitability of their thoughts. I decided who to support for funding prizes and job opportunities. To be honest, he said, I felt deeply uncomfortable exercising such coercive power over others. As a missionary, I have no power to curse anyone to come to my Bible studies. I invite them, and people are free to come or not as they choose. If they're there, it's because they want to be. I have no control over who responds spiritually and who does not. And he said, I love it. Then he grinned. It's kind of funny. Tenured anthropology professors at an elite institution themselves exercising a good deal, of course, of power over the thoughts of others. Nonetheless, regularly scapegoat missionaries as supposedly the ones guilty of exercising toxic, coercive power. This old missionary anthropologist's intuitions were recently supported by a quantitative political science publication in the top journal, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. Political science has long been interested. Why do different countries of the world, as they emerge, differ in their commitment to religious liberty, mass education, free press, civil rights, democratic institutions? Robert Woodbury, himself a missionary kid and sociologist, collected data and geocoded the historic location and number of missionaries at every mission post worldwide by decade, over 100 years, and proved statistically that the best predictor of any nation's current commitment to mass education, free press, civil rights, voluntary organizations, democratic institutions, was the historical presence and influence of what he labels conversionist Protestant missionaries evangelicals. 
While missionaries in some traditions, such as Catholic, were often comfortable with coerced conversions, conversionist Protestants were not. A coerced conversion, in their view, was not a genuine conversion. These early missionaries had no interest in harnessing government to coerce conversions, asking only that government maintain religious liberty, allowing for conversion. While some religions preserve literacy only for the elite as an aid to their own elite power, these missionaries propagated literacy for everyone. Everyone should be able to read the Bible. You can read the article online if you wish to see the full complex argument. Woodbury's article not only called into question widespread post-colonial discourses about missionaries in the secular academy, but largely disproved other theories as, the, as to the key factors historically influencing countries toward values of liberal democracy. We live in a day and age where secular culture regularly provides one-sided negative portrayals of Christianity, Christian ethics, and Christian mission and Christians themselves sometimes unwittingly accept and even repeat, some of the time, things that are actually falsehoods. They're pejorative falsehoods. And this undercuts our own confidence in the beauty and goodness of the biblical message. I've been fascinated with Joel Robbins in his article. He, he accuses anthropologists, of course, of overly fixating on suffering and oppression that, and understanding them only in materialist terms he points out that psychological anthropologists devote lots of energy to studying the negative emotions, depression, despair, trauma, but almost no energy to studying empathy, faith, hope, love, covenant commitment, moral fortitude, and joy. This anthropological one-sidedness, says Joel Robbins, is not because people don't actually pursue those things and experience those things as goods in their life, but because of materialist presuppositions about what counts and a hermeneutics of suspicion directed towards culture and meaning and, of course, towards Christian culture and meaning. Robbins calls for a re-engagement by anthropologists with meaning and culture, especially meaning and culture oriented towards the good. I, I love this article because no other anthropologists or hardly any have actually said he's wrong. They, they've agreed. Okay, you've named it. And many of them have actually heeded his call to say, we're going to start working on that. And I'm intrigued also because this anthropologist, a secular Jew, has found his best examples of such cultural goods mostly in the context of Christian communities worldwide and in relationship to distinctively Christian ideas. Several years ago, there were some famous Marxist European philosophers who wrote, well, some of them wrote whole books on the topic, bemoaning the inability to galvanize people into fundamental civilizational change. And they wrote in their writings about enviously about this one exception, and that is the only person in Western history to have ever successfully accomplished fundamental civilizational change was the Apostle Paul. Joel Robbins, this anthropologist, replied to them and said essentially, those of us who are studying Christianity in all of these places around the world actually do encounter peoples who are bringing about dramatic and fundamental change in service of new ideas. What you say only happened at the time of Paul and result of that, it's playing out in different places around the world right now, and we can talk to you about it. 
Um, and he organized a published conversation on it between the philosopher theologians and anthropologists who published in the South Atlantic Quarterly. Um, let me give one brief example of the sort of thing these anthropologists have done and then wrap it up. Uh, consider a single example, Elizabeth Brusco's Ethnography of Evangelical Conversion in Colombia. Before conversion, the men she studied aspired to a machismo where their energy and resources were directed outside of their marital home. They were often married, but it was outside their home, to the street and the bar, to sexual conquest, gambling, drinking, conspicuous consumption, prostitution, and multiple sexual partners. Their own wives and children lived in poverty. With conversion, and it was often their wives who evangelized them, with conversion, these men embraced an ethic of sexual monogamous exclusivity and renounced their various expensive vices. And with God's help, it actually was possible for men to control themselves sexually. Having renounced gambling, drinking, and prostitution, they redirected their energy, their love, and their resources toward the well-being of their own home, their own wife, and the education of their children. The poverty of wives and children was dramatically reversed, and the next generation Flourish. This is a document in Elizabeth Brusco's book on evangelical conversion in Colombia. As I have read the works of these anthropologists about Christianity, many of whom are fascinated by how this is playing out in people's lives, I've been convicted that sometimes we as missiologists should have been doing some of the same thing ourselves. That is, that maybe we're not recognizing and paying enough attention to how Christianity is playing out in positive ways and actually using that to develop part of an apologetic for the Christian faith. Whatever else Christian mission involves, it must include a deep conviction as to the goodness and truth of the biblical message and a lifelong effort through whatever your vocations are, a lifelong effort to be able to better understand to communicate and to defend this message through word and deed in a wide variety of contexts. This three-day conference focuses on the future of global mission. My presentation has attempted to set the stage for this by looking backwards and reviewing how the world has changed in the last hundred years and some of what this has meant for the environment in which we need to be brainstorming missions for the future. In the next three days, more than 30 workshop leaders and chapel speakers, uh, most graduates of this institution, and with profound and experiential knowledge of specific aspects of contemporary mission, engaging the Muslim world. I mean, there's just a whole variety of things. Will help us grapple further with what these sorts of changes and current dynamics mean for the future of global mission and your own involvement in it. Each of them has put a great deal of thought and prayer into what they will share. Uh, each session of workshops have choices. If you don't want to go to one, go to another one. Pick one that fits your possible interests. I hope you will take full advantage of this opportunity. I so commend uh, the leadership of this institution for the commitment represented in this whole week's program. Thank you.
We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.